All right, everyone, let's do this. How are you? Welcome to this week's episode of our podcast. It's called Breakfast Included. Thanks for joining us. On the show this week, we have Ralph Roll. Ralph is the drummer and sometimes singer of the band Nile Rodgers and Chic. He also owns the company Soul Snacks, which sells the most amazing cookies, which you can find in Walmart and Kroger. He tells us all about that, his career, his upbringing, his first gig, his first tour, plus much more. It's a great conversation. Let's check it out. Tell everyone who you are. Uh, my name is Ralph Roll. I am the drummer for Na Rogers and Chic. I am uh, originally from the Bronx, New York. Uh, a proud Bronx resident still. My uh, business is there. And uh, uh, and I love being a, a drummer and a, a businessman. Right on, man. Well, yeah. I, Ralph, I appreciate you doing this. How, how long have you been playing drums? Oh, God. I've... Uh, Started playing when I was around nine years old. Uh-huh. Um, so if I do the math, nine was nineteen six seventy. Okay. Yeah, nineteen seventy, I believe, somewhere around there. And now it's what twenty twenty three. So seventy eight. Fifty two years. Yeah. 52, yeah. You want to know how I know that? I was uh, born in 1970. Oh, God. <laughs> Normally, uh, my math is terrible. Oh, I'm but like, I man, knew exactly. I'm like, this dude is quick. <laughs> Need to call I'm a savant. Right, do some accounting for me, man. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you come from a musical family? or? Uh, my, my aunt played piano. Uh-huh. Um, my grandmother obviously sung in church, as most people did, but... Not like a real musical like family, like we would get together and jam. My brother was a drummer, okay, and that's where I got it from. Uh-huh. I, I, he, uh, the drums ended up in my house one day when I was around nine years old, and uh, I just did everything that he did. So he played drums, I played drums. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. one of those things like don't touch my drums when I'm not home. No, or? he was actually cool with it. I, really? You know, he saw my enthusiasm. And I said, "How we can I play?" He said, "Yeah, you can play. Just don't change the drums around because you're left-handed." Ah. You know, so I I just abided by my older brother's rules, and I would just sit down and play. That's why I play open-handed now. So open-handed means you're you're hitting that hi-hat with your left hand. Yes, I lead with my left on my hi-hat and right hand is on the snare. It's actually a pretty cool style. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've only seen a very few... I've only known a couple of drummers that played open-handed. Yeah, well, Simon Phillips, is, he's, he's ambidextrous, but uh, Billy Cobham plays open-handed. There's a couple mm-hmm. other guys out there yeah. that uh, play open-handed. It's a, it's a cool style. Yeah, yeah. Does it allow you to do... Yeah, um, back in the 80s, uh, I was working in a local group called Indigo, and Mm -hmm. the first time that I had to uh, use my left hand and play groove with my right hand was to play a clap machine. That You didn't even play with a stick, I had to play with my hand. Mm -hmm. But that was the first attempt at doing multiple things, but it does free you up to have you know, the ability to play open because my percussion is on the, uh, my drum machine is on the uh, left-hand side. So I have congas in there so I can play a a conga groove and still continue to, you know, play the drums, which is a lot, it's a lot of fun. All right. So your brother told you not to switch it around so you knew right off the bat, like, you were different. I didn't. You didn't? I never, I never thought... never just... I, I didn't even know if anyone... 
<clears throat> maybe someone might have said it to me, but I might have just like, oh, I don't, whatever. But it ne- I never like, oh wow, I got to play this right-handers way. Yeah, you know, I just uh, just adapted the style. Yeah, I met her at Gills a few years back, and I asked him the same thing, like, hey, and he's like, nah, I just picked it up how it was comfortable. Right, he plays. He plays left-handed, but right. he's strong right-handed. Right, 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 right. That's right, right, the way. Right. So, Doyle, Doyle Bramhall II. Too, so the so bottom like, string yeah. is on the on the bottom. On the, yeah. Wow, wow, wow. That low E is you low know. E. Wow, that's so, amazing. So I guess it's the same thing. It was just felt right to do. Yeah, it. yeah. That's all it was. I I love that the style that I play. It's just easy. Yeah. Yeah. Did you? Uh, when did you? When did you get your first professional gig? My first professional gig. I was nineteen. Um, I was just a couple of years out of high school. I graduated a year early and, um, the intent was that I was going to go to engineering school uh, or early childcare. Uh-huh. Uh, I wanted to be a teacher. Okay. But when I told my mother that, uh, I wanted to play drums, she just was, thought I was the craziest person. So I just practiced on everybody else's kit cause I didn't have one. I didn't get my... I graduated at 17. I didn't get my drum set until I was 18, and I did my first pro gig at 19. Yeah. Yeah. Was that like a, a session, or was it a... No, it was a tour. It was a, a group called Musique, and they had a, a, a hit song called Push, Push in the Bush. Uh-huh. Push, push in the bush. <laughs> and we toured Mexico, man. It was a beautiful... I, I've seen probably more cities in Mexico than many people that live there. I was all over Mexico, man, mm-hmm. and it was so beautiful. I mean, Ixtapa, Jalapa, Tampico, Guadalajara, um, Michoacan, uh, so many others. And I, I remembered those, all of those cities for many, many years because it was my first tour. So, uh-huh. you know, I just, I, I really loved it there. I had yeah. a good tax code, you know, and the people uh, loved the band and I, and I loved the, 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 the treatment. Right very nice so what was it like for for a kid from the bronx man to like like go to mexico like um, was it i mean was there a culture shock there of course well yeah there, there was a couple of things that i had seen that made a an indelible mark in my in my psyche uh-huh. you know um one of the first things that i had seen when we when we pulled into mexico city was i saw a family that was homeless an entire family and I grew up in the projects, mm-hmm. so it um, it made me understand that where I lived was not bad at all, especially when you see that type of situation. And from that point, I've always tried my best to help people, yeah, because I did realize right at that moment that you know whatever my mother had for us, there are people out there. That when you think you're doing bad, there's somebody's doing worse. Yeah. So I I just do a lot of stuff to help people as much as I can. That's pretty important to know, man. Like you you could be having a bad day, but even your bad day is better than someone's best day. Yes, Some and I and I you know the thing is I don't compare myself, but I know that I have a job to do, mm-hmm. and the job is to try to be as uh, benevolent and kind and empathetic and and positive as possible mm-hmm. to uh, everyone. Yeah. You know, that's just important to me. It's always been important to me. Yeah. And in your position as, as a professional musician, how do you use that to help people? Um, I've used this, this platform uh, to 
you know, do a lot of different things. Like, for example, um, I have another business in New York. Me and my, my wife, we have a, a, a cookie company mm-hmm. that I started in my apartment when I lived in the projects. And I started that just about the same time as I started as a professional musician, maybe a couple of years after. And through that uh, relationship um, of music, I've uh, it's allowed me to help other people to get different situations and 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 move their lives and their families along. Mm-hmm. So if if I find an opportunity to use what I've done in the in the, the music the music part of my life, I exercise that right as much as I can. Yeah. So in your other business, what, what I get, did you like bring people up from the community oh, yeah. that you were in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I always go back to my community first to hire people. That's awesome, man. Always. That's, awesome. That's the first thing. Yeah. Uh, matter of fact, everybody that worked for me, I think maybe other than one person who came from Brooklyn was from the Bronx. You know, uh, the Bronx is what was, one of the most depressed areas in in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. So I was always proud of where I came from. I never was a hey, I'm, I'm from the Bronx and shy away. Yeah, you know, I I always felt like I live in the best place in the world. You know, it's it was literally a melting pot of incredible people. Yeah, in my neighborhood, and which which I I caused me to be colorblind. I was raised colorblind. I don't. I don't think in those terms. I just think no. people. Yeah. And I always have, and I think I always will. So That's what a lot of people don't understand. You know, when I was young, we lived in the projects uh, in the town I grew up in, in Corsicana, Texas. Mm-hmm. And the projects were called the Red Bricks. The Red Bricks. Because they were all, you know, the brick, the the actual apartments were all red, you know, they were well, red bricks. Uh-huh. So they'd say, you live in the Red Bricks, you know. And, <laughs> and at the time, people, you know, they they... You know, they look down on you. You see that, that, but you have this community there. Your friends live there. You know everybody yeah. that lives there. And then as you go, like when, when I go home, it's few, few trips that I go home, but I pass that up and I go, it was so big to me then, you know, but I, that's where I grew up yeah. in those projects. That's, yeah. a, you know, it's funny because I was just having this conversation today about, uh, right across the street from the projects was private houses. Uh huh. But there was, people there that looked at us differently because we were from the projects. And I I would always honestly get really confused about that because you live right across the street from me. I mean, I, I go around the corner and you know, my friends were there, but they're, you know, their parents and sometimes their grandparents would look at me like, Oh, he's from the projects. Like all of a sudden, like I had, uh, you know, a booger on my face. I don't know. <laughs> you could rob a bank exactly, with a booger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, and and that actually motivated me. It motivated yeah. me to be great because the way I would think is, you're looking down on me. My mother raised a community here. She she was amazing. Uh-huh. And I'm going to prove to you that no matter where you come from, you can excel. And so they their negativities push help me. Yeah. You know, I didn't look at it the other way like, oh, oh, why are you talking about me? I'm like, okay, I'll show you. I'll show you. Yeah, I think we have that same <laughs> really? people call it spite. Yes. There's that really? <laughs> I thrive on spite. <laughs> you know, you 
I guess I do as well because don't tell me no. Don't tell me something I cannot do. Yeah. Because then I, I got to prove you wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's crazy. Very true. But it's true. It's true. You you grow up. And every, uh, I want to say 75% of the people that I still uh, talk to that grew up in that in those projects, they all came up to either be teachers or nurses or that type, you know, right, right. giving back. Right, right. I'm the only I'm the only outlier. <laughs> but I feel like I help people. I set up shows. You know, it's funny because my, my sister is a teacher. She's yeah. a retired principal now. But, uh, yeah, she went into teaching. Um, and I think it was a good life. But my first tour um, just was an eye-opener on the mm-hmm. possibilities. My first time on a plane, my first time out of the country, first time with a passport. You know, I, I went uh, and saw some amazing sites that a lot of people... Um, my age, from where I came from, probably never had a chance to see. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? it you is. know, I was just—we were just at Red Rocks. We did two shows there, right? Yeah. Um, when I started touring, my first—I tell this story to anybody who will listen. My first real show was at the Nine Thirty Club in DC. Uh-huh. My first real, like, what I say, big tour show was at Red Rocks. Gotcha. We were the—I was with the support band, and I thought it's all going to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think about those fairs or right, 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 <laughs> the rodeos we'd right, be doing. Right, right, right. But Red Rocks, that was, uh, I pulled up the picture the other day, 15 years ago, you know, was, was when I started touring. 15, wow. And I, just, I started touring late, but, you know, I, I don't think I'd appreciate it the way I do if I would have started any earlier. Right. Understood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when did you meet Niall? Well, the Nile story, when I actually met Nile, it was the first meeting wasn't that romantic at all. <laughs> um, I had always wanted to play for Sheik. Uh-huh. I mean, from the first time I heard Sheik, I was like, there's something so unique about this group, man. And they look cool and they just had a style, a swag that was just so amazing. And um, so many years later, um, after Tony passed away, word went out, this is before social media, yeah. that there was an audition coming up for um, Nal Rogers, well, not Nal Rogers, but Sheik. So I was all eager to play because I, I knew all the songs and I knew that I could really nail it. But it was more of a marketing ploy because Omar Hakim had the gig. Yeah. Had it. It was his. And he did it for, for, for many years. And then... Um, I was on a, uh, I was in a local band that got hired to play, uh, an event that was honoring now. So we learned all of these chic songs and I'm like, wow, this is the first time he'll get a chance to hear me play. Maybe yeah. I'll meet him. But all of the attention and focus that night was on Nile as the honoree. Yeah. So his, uh, the lead singer at the time, Silver was there, Silver Logan Sharp and her, pianist now boyfriend was playing and they uh didn't sit in with us but they did like a special tribute to Nile and then he came up on stage and I'm playing but he was just I felt like the jilted lover because he never paid any 
You didn't pay any attention you, to what me. What about me? Right, right, right. He's like, look over here. <laughs> so he never did. You wore your best dress that night, Ralph, and he didn't yeah, even look at you. He didn't even look at me, man. I had my hair done. Uh, and then um, a very short time after, there was um, an event that I got called to do, and he was co-musical director on the event. And um, that's the first time he actually heard me mm-hmm. play. Again, Nothing, no, no fireworks or nothing. He just a good gig. That was it, finish. And then a drummer by the name of Nathaniel Townsley called me, and said uh, he called me. And I, when I saw him call, it's like we don't really talk like that. So it had to be for some kind of gig. So I didn't know he was playing with Chic at the time. So he called me up and said, "Hey man, listen, I'm playing with Joe Zawinu, and I need a sub for the Chic gig." And I was like. Fine. I mean, I was at the Apollo playing at the time. I was like, okay, this this could be good. Yeah. So I I took the gig and they sent me the material and I rehearsed it and and uh, right before we left, we were going to Switzerland, the Gestad. Um, now said he wanted to hear me, so they called me up and me and Jerry Barnes wasn't the bass player at the time. It was it was uh, Barry Johnson. Okay. Um, and we went in the studio, uh, rehearsal studio. Me. Nile and Barry Johnson. So when I get there, Barry's there. Nile's not there. I set up my music, I, you know, because what I normally do for any gig is I write out my own charts because it not only gives me a chance to study the very intricate nuances of a song, but then I have all of my notes right there and mm-hmm. I, I want to nail every gig. Yeah. So Nile comes in. He says, hey, how you doing? I say, hey, how you doing now? So that was the first time we actually spoke. Yeah. So he says, all right, let's take it from the medley. So I turn my page to the medley, and we start playing the medley. We get about uh, two and a half songs in. He goes, stops. He goes, okay. And starts packing up his stuff. And I got nervous. Like, <laughs> this, this is not, what just happened? So I, in my master classes, I teach ask questions. If you need to know something for your chair, ask questions. So as he was packing up, I said, now, was that cool? He said, yeah, you sound great. I'll see you in Switzerland. And that was it. So the next time I saw him was- the gig. Yeah. I, I, think, I, don't, I don't even know if he came to soundcheck. But <laughs> came to the gig. I did the whole gig. Afterward, Silver, the same young woman that I saw at the uh, at event, comes over to me and says, um, Nile wants to know if you want the gig. And the first thing I said, oh, what about Nathaniel? That's my boy. He's like, What's, what about that? He said, well, we were holding the chair for someone that now wanted. So he wasn't the the, the drummer that he wanted. He, yeah. he, um, he'd like you to do the gig. And I said, absolutely. And that was just about 17 years ago. I actually was leaving the Apollo at the time. That was, I was having some... Some difficulties there, so it wasn't. It didn't feel good anymore to work at the Apollo, and I love to this day. I still love the Apollo, and I'm honored that I worked there for so many years. Yeah. But moving over to play with Nile and meet Nile has been amazing. I'm so glad that this is going on in my life right now. And what year was this? So 17 minus. You got me doing math. So this is right <laughs> around. Let me see. 2018, So it was 2000. 2006, 6, 16, 17, 18, 19. Yeah, 2006. Okay. I did the math. Uh, 
Don't ask me to do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's he's he's easy to work for. He's Nile is probably one of the simplest band leaders I've ever had the pleasure of of working behind. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen him a lot. I've I've got to observe him. Uh, you know, my younger days, I only knew Nile as as you know he produced. He did, you know, the David Bowie Let's Dance. He yeah. did, you know, he worked with Stevie Ray. And, mm. and that's, that's what, so when, you know, that's what I knew about him. But watching him these last several years, it's just amazing. I believe we did a gig. I won't say the city and I won't say the artist. But someone got up and played with you guys and now came off stage. And he's like, man, he's up there asking about timing. Leave that to me. You just play. <laughs> <laughs> But your band is amazing, man. You know, you Thank guys you, are a machine. We have, okay, so just to analyze what you're seeing, or what I feel you're seeing, every single person in that band has come through some some uh, local situation for an extended period of time. Like working in a club where there was only two people kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Working all night, doing three sets, and you might get $50 kind of vibe. Yeah. So the attitude, including Nile, is that we always play from our heart. I don't care how many people are in the audience or how many people are not in the audience or what the weather is. Whoever's there, we're going to entertain them. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing on stage is a bunch of um, people that really are uh, in tuned with each other and we translate that forward so yeah when jerry and i are looking at each other and he's playing bass that's for the purpose of connecting the bottom of what we're doing and making sure that it's tight and then Nile f- comes with the rhythm guitar and it just blends in together and it's it's always a great feeling yeah you know i really i really like working with them yeah i've seen a lot of bands and you can always tell when a band is phoning it in yeah like you know what you just said like everyone came up through some local situation you know those people those artists that are like i don't care you know tonight might be the night that someone's out in the crowd and they're going to see me perform and they're going to see my energy so like you said whether there's two or two million people there they're going to put on the same show I play exactly the same way and that that's that's uh just a testament to um to how we all feel about um entertainment and, yeah. and and making people happy. Yeah. You have a you have a spot in the set. Mm. Everyone knows, <laughs> you know, you play this classic Bowie Nile Rodgers song. Mm. Did Bowie ever get to see you play that? I uh, know. I wish he had, but here's how that song came about. <laughs> um I was I had taken a a, a short break uh, from working with Nile to work with the artist that I'd worked with for many years in Japan. His name is Toshi, Toshi mm-hmm. Kubota. He's a big star there. And I was doing the tour, but I also had taken Niles' um, biography with me called The Freak. And I get to the chapter about um, meeting Bowie. And I knew nothing about it. But this is so funny how sometimes you be in the music business your whole life and you miss something. I love the song Let's Dance. Everybody loves the song. Yeah. It's one of those crossover songs that hit the black community just like Benny and the Jets. You know, there's songs like that 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 transcends everything. Yeah. 
and and Let's Dance was one of those songs. So um, I'm reading the chapter. Niall was hanging out with Billy Idol, and they walk into this club at the same time that Bowie walks in. And Niall knows Bowie, Bowie knows Niall, but they never met. So right as they introduced themselves, Billy Idol threw up. <laughs> you got to read the book. It's really good. <laughs> Billy Idol throws up, and, and, and Niall and David go into this club, and they sit down, and from Niall's recollection, they talked for an extended period of time. So Bowie was like, listen, why don't you come to the house? We can write some music together. And, you know, so he did. He went to Bowie's house and uh, Bowie came to him one night. He said he was sleeping. Bowie came to him and said, listen, wake up. I got to tell you about this song I have called Let's Dance. And he sung it to him and it was nothing like what we hear. So he said, leave it to me. I'll, I'll come up with something for the song. And this genius uh, producer, thinker, writer, creator, came up with the whole vibe of Let's Dance. So I was totally blown away and shocked and stupefied because I didn't know this. I didn't know that Niall had anything to do with Let's Dance. So I get off the train and I call him. And I remember the conversation so well. He picks up the phone. He says, hello. I said, dude. The first words out of my mouth, I said, dude. You produce less dance. And now has this really slow laugh. He goes, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> and he just laughs. And I said, bro, we got to put this song in the set. We have to. But I wasn't thinking, I was thinking um, maybe the keyboard player could sing it. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking me at all. Yeah. But I just wanted the song in the set because I thought it would, it would really work. And he said to me, well, if you learn it, we'll do it. And I was like, no, 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 that's not what I... He said, no, I think you do a great job. Learn it. We'll do it. So now I done put my whole foot in my mouth. (laughs) So now I got to learn, let's dance, and play that groove, which is actually a a four-bar phrase, and then make it sound comfortable. Mm -hmm. But because of so many years in clubs and playing and doing, you know, singing and playing, I got it. And and it's, it's become a really integral part of our our show when it first came on the set it was like number five in the set and then it went to number seven and then it went to uh, three songs before the end now it's the song before good time yeah so you know and then i this whole hype thing that i do i learned that from dougie fresh dougie fresh is the hype man he's my boy but i've watched him hype arenas yeah and i just I just learned how to do that hype part from him. Yeah. You know, he's really good in front of people. So yeah. it's, it works. I love I love doing it, though. I love well, it. that hype part works because I remember watching you guys sound check to an empty arena and you start telling the, the people working, <laughs> all you yellow, all you people in yellow shirts. <laughs> Everybody's just looking around at your sound check. So it's, it, it's great, man. I, I remember it's, you know. Yeah. It's cool, but it's, it 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 definitely is one of the highlights of that. And and to compete with what you guys are playing, the hits you guys are playing, the songs Niles written, that's saying a lot. Did it comp- You know, it's it's a highlight of that. Set. It's a it's a it's really a fun band, man. I mean, we we're on. You, if I want you to watch just the dynamics 
on the stage how much fun we're actually having up there. Yeah. It's really fun. And I'm I'm over on stage right, so I watch the horn players a lot too. <laughs> yeah, they they're hilarious. Yeah. So I goof with them, I goof with Jerry and Kim and I are always talking. Right yeah, on. It's funny. It's a fun show. We just love entertaining. Have you ever had a nightmare gig? I ask every musician if they've ever had a nightmare gig. Um I I've had a few. I can I mean as you said it, I recall three. Uh-huh. Three different people, freaking nightmares. Like it was, you know, nightmares for different reasons too. Yeah. One, um, I worked behind the legend uh, Martha Reeves from Motown, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't know her. You know, I knew I know her music, but when she came in, she had these charts, and they 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 were you know been around a long time. A lot of people put notes on the charts and everything. So I had studied her music before because I knew what we were going to play. But she, you know, bless her heart, she was the meanest person. (laughs) She was so mean. I mean, I remember one time, as I normally do, I clocked all the tempos in my little metronome. And I started playing the tempo. And she went, she turned around and, what are you doing? I make the tempos. And I went, Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just doing my job <laughs> over here. But at the end of uh, the the uh, run that we did, we did a run in Europe. I happened to bump into her getting off the elevator. And I said, Hi, have, a, have a good night. She said, you did a really great job. And she all of a sudden was the sweetest person in the world. So I just think her game face was a little much for me because I'm I'm – you know, I don't, I don't like that kind of stuff. But, yeah. But I realized, you know, she was cool. And then the other nightmare gig was, it was a nightmare, and a, one of the best teaching lessons that I have to the point that I talk about in my master classes was Roberta Flack, sweet lady, but the gig was so intense. Mm-hmm. It's got to be the hardest gig I've ever played because everything is so tacit. And everything is so you know, placement involved, and you know, yeah, that's. But again, she, she, I'm cool with Roberta. Always have been. Yeah, yeah. I have one more. I, I think I'll leave that name because <laughs> you know him. Him and I still, you know. He anyway. Let's leave that one. <laughs> yeah, that's what we talked about at the beginning. If there's anything you don't yeah, want to, no, answer, no, it's, it's, it's the, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not in the in the in the business of trying to blow folks up. But yeah, yeah, that's fine. All I can say is this: on your climb in the ladder to to famous success, don't forget the guys that was there with you in the trenches, yeah. and don't start treating them like they don't matter. Yeah, that, that's a painful act. You know, and it, it will cause a lot of hurt to an individual yeah. because of that. It's like you don't know where it came from. You get kind of blindsided by it. Yeah. You know, so, but I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad yeah. I'm with Nile Rodgers. I yeah. tell them all the time, you saved my musical life. Right on, man. <laughs> they, they, they always say, don't screw anyone on your way up because you meet them on your way down. There you go. I just, I, I, it was, it was a I quit your fight kind of vibe when, with the situation. Okay. Yeah. Well, man, I know Niall, I know she, they keep you busy. Probably not much time for any other gigs. Do you do other gigs when you have downtime? Um, 
when I have downtime, there's uh, there's uh, clinics that I do. I do a lot of drum clinics mm-hmm. in the middle of what I'm doing. I have a manager in Dublin. And I also have an, an assistant in New York that helps me with, with coordinate my life. Okay. So when I'm not playing with Niall and there's time, I will go and do some master classes uh, in other places. So on this particular run, after we're done with um, Australia, I'm going to Japan to do some master classes and then over to Dubai to do some uh, a gig with uh, Niall and Sheik. Okay. But I love to teach. I've always loved that. What what does your master class entail? I came up with this um platform called How to Get and Keep a Gig. Uh-huh. My um master class idea came by way of frustration of some of the master classes that I was actually seeing. Some of them were good, but many of them were uh magic tricks. And this is no disrespect to anyone because I'm not gonna name anyone. Yeah, yeah. But Many of the so-called masterclasses I was seeing was someone just doing a lot of things to an audience of people that were going, ooh. But my thing was, a masterclass shows that you've mastered the instrument, but now you have to translate to the audience how you've done that. And many times they weren't. Yeah. You know, so when people left, they would go, man, that dude can play. What'd you learn? Yeah, he could play. <laughs> Show me what you got. Right, it wasn't <laughs> there wasn't any any substance of yeah. education there. So, I I started teaching as a teenager in drum and bugle corps. I used to I used to teach ensembles. Uh huh. Um, it started when when uh, one of my other mentors, Ricky Mangum, allowed me to teach with him. And from that point, I just love teaching. I have the patience. My wife said I'm the most patient man in the world, but I just feel it's important to give that information back and pay it forward. Somebody did it for me and I don't want to just take it with me. I want to give it away. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the riches is giving away education. That's, that's the gem. So my masterclass is called how to get and keep a gig. And I have different components that I go through. One is uh, I, I talk about the word can't and how de- detrimental that is having the the word but behind your name you know yo ralph is good but and when you hear but every, everybody yeah. they didn't hear ralph is good they heard yeah. but yeah. but what oh man he's on drugs and he yeah. uh, okay who else you got so i explained to people how important it is to have a name that people will honor and respect yeah that's your that's your calling card yeah you know and then i i came up with this thing basically looking back on my life and I call it the five P's, passion, power, placement, performance, and purity. And I expound on all of those and what it means. And I have little anecdotes that I talk about and then I play and show people stuff and just get them to understand their power, their their energy, their, their, um, their strength. Most of it is about getting out of your own way. Yeah. And understanding that if you do that, that the, the, the road is paved with many great things if you allow yourself and not second guess, you know, you will fall, but that's important as getting up. Yeah. So I, 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 I have a lot of success stories just recently. Something very emotional happened when I was at a festival in Europe about uh, a month ago. And when we came off stage, we got right into the, uh, 
the cars and went straight to the buses. And when I got there, I went, oh, man, I left my stuff in the dressing room. So I got one of the vehicles to take me back. And when I went in the dressing room area, there was this young kid just sitting there. I thought he was security. So I went, hey, how you doing? He said hello to me. And I walked in the dressing room and I got my stuff. And I immediately came out and he said, how you doing? I said, I'm okay. He said, great show tonight. He said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, you came to my school and you said something that changed my life. And I just wanted to thank you. So he was sitting there waiting and I didn't know I was going back. That's why I was so like blown away yeah. because if I would have grabbed my stuff, I probably would not have seen this young man. He said, but there was something at the master class that you said that changed my life. Now I'm touring. I'm a touring musician. Wow. And I, I just wanted to thank you for that. So that was a great moment in my life because you want people to hear you. You want people to understand that yeah. you're speaking from a very passionate point, a very true and honest point. And this young kid who I didn't remember from him being in the audience said that I said something to him. This kid from the Bronx said something to this kid that changed his life. And that that, that made a lot of big difference to me. Wow. You know, at that moment. I can imagine, you know, that how that felt. Like you said, if you would have just did a runner and had your stuff ready on the bus right. or the, on the van, you wouldn't have had that moment. You no. wouldn't have known. He wouldn't have been able to tell you. Right. I'm sure it was just as important to him to tell you that. Yeah, it was. It was... It was it was very emotional for me. I'm an emotional guy and everyone would tell you how I am. My passion is deep with, yeah. with, with family, with friends, with, with my business. My passion is deep. And I was happy that I helped this kid. You know, I don't know what he was feeling or doing before, but whatever I said that contributed because, yeah. you know, there's family and mothers and fathers and ups and downs that, that, changes your life yeah that somehow in his palette of things that i'm i'm sitting there so <laughs> do you think that comes from the uh when you were younger wanting to be a teacher absolutely absolutely i i i i, I wanted i i i saw myself as a young kid before drums doing two things is is it was either going to be engineering or i was going to be a guidance counselor that was the two things, either engineering or I'm going to be a guidance counselor. <clears throat> that's okay. Um. So that's part of it. So when I got a chance to start teaching as a, as a teenager and, and just learning and honing in on how to motivate, it, it just stuck with me. And, and I, I will always try to teach and, and, uh, and give back. Right on, man. Yeah. Right on. You uh, to get back to your master class. You said an important thing that you teach is to get out of your own way. Um, that's a hard lesson to learn for some people. It, and it sounds it it, it kind of comes off. What what I'm getting is it's almost like a motivational speech as well as a. This is how I got here. Well, to me, the drumming is the commercial, uh huh, and the talking is the actual show. The master class. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's for me. The drumming is just a, I'm going to play because I supposed to, I guess, yeah. but I'd rather talk the whole time if it was, if it was possible. Getting out of your own way is the main thing because you're, you're, I, I look at the brain, even though it's a, it's a membrane, 
I look at it as a muscle. Mm-hmm. And any muscle grows when you exercise it, and then it will, any muscle atrophies when you don't. So many times as you're growing up in your environment and things, sometimes you talk yourself into a corner and you build your own bricks in your own walls. And now you have the job through whatever means to now break down these bricks that you created yourself. Yeah. Now that could come from the environment. It could come from post-traumatic stress of things that went on in your life. But I'm there to let them know, listen, I grew up, in very humble beginnings. You know, I didn't have my first kit until I was 18. Um, but I had a belief and I tried to make sure. And I, and my feeling is if these are the steps that I've taken that I've told you today, hopefully you can pull from that to, to mo- motivate yourself to do the things, but mainly just get out of your own way and don't, don't be afraid to fail. Yeah. I think a lot of times people stop what they're doing is <laughs> they're afraid to fail and they have a plan B. I'm not a plan B guy. Never have been. Yeah. I'm actually writing a book called No Plan B. Yeah. Um, And I know some people will go, that's not good advice. Well, most people that I know who are very successful bet it all, all of it. I mean, I can go down the line from technical, technical jobs to musicians on down, the, they bet it all. Yeah. They, there was no half step and there was no, well, if I don't do this, then I have that to fall, fall back, back on. on. Yeah. That's great parental thinking. But individual thinking, I think it's a different way because I raised my daughter to be independent. I've given her the foundation and the tools to take with her. And then I let her make her own decisions. Yeah. That's what I think parenting is about. It's not, I can say to her, no, you want to be a musician, but you you should take that nursing thing so you can fall back. No, now you're not trying to do this 100%. Yeah. If this is your true passion, you have to be willing to die for it, honestly. Yeah. You got to be willing to be homeless, live in your car, live with a friend, but yeah. you're practicing and working hard all the time. So when you look back, pass or fail, you passed. You you know what I mean? Yeah. You you absolutely passed because you can now look and go, you know what? No matter what, I first of all I did it my way and I did it hard and full. Yeah. And that's what I think is important. You know what? Yeah, it's 100% true. Mm-hmm. You know, in 40 years you may find yourself just drumming in some club, but you're drumming or you're playing guitar or you're singing or you're acting or you're that's what you, you know, Living the life the way right. you want to live it. Because it's, it's not about the money. I, listen, man, I mean, in all honesty, for many years of my career, there was no real money involved, you know? But I loved what I was doing. Yeah. I wasn't first call, you know? I was sometimes third call. And then I got to second call. And then, I, but it was the, the journey for me that was important to get there. I mean, when I meet... The, the the drummers that I looked up to, I'm still blown away by that. It's not like the other day I just met Questlove for the first time. I was honored. Like, yo, I love this dude, man. I love what he's doing and everything. It wasn't like, oh, hey, Questlove. Yeah. No, I was like, yo, finally. I told him, I said, I finally got a chance to shake your hand. When I met Bernard Purdy last year, 
2022, August, I cried. <laughs> I couldn't contain myself. I'm like, this is Bernard Pretty Purdy standing in front of me. I hugged him like he was my father. <laughs> but that's just how I feel about what, I, what I'm doing. It's yeah. not, I'm still amazed by, and I'm still a fan of. Yeah. So, and that's going to be forever. Yeah. Yeah. I met Questlove the other night too. Yeah. And when I met him, I shook his hand and he said, I'm Amir. And I was like, come on, man. And he goes, I'm Questlove. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the kind of, that's, you know. Yeah. But I'm saying, that was my next question, man. The heroes, what's it like? How are you meeting your heroes? And have you met a lot of them? It's Okay. So here's what's odd. I'm humble to these guys. And I never see myself as an, uh, an equal or I don't. Yeah. These are the guys that help me to grow by listening to them on records and, and listening to them on the radio. So when I meet them, I'm always have, I always have that I'm not worthy feeling because you've done so much for me. You know, yeah. no, I know you, man, you're doing this, that, and the other. And I'm not, yeah, but I'm tall. I'm actually, <laughs> words are coming out of my mouth to your ears yeah. and back and forth. It's amazing to me. Yeah. Like the first time that I got a chance to um, send a text message to Robin Russell, who was the drummer for New Birth. Uh-huh. I grew up like that was one of the most amazing albums. Is an album called Birthday by New Birth. And the drummer was amazing. So when I texted him on social media, I said, hey, how you doing? I'm Ralph and from the Apollo Theater. Nah, 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 nah. Just wanted to tell you, man, that I, th- I think you are amazing and, and always loved what you've done. Hey, Ralph, thank you so much. I'm like, oh, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, first time I met Buddy Williams, session master. Yeah. I mean, done so many... Blown away when when I was talking to Buddy on the phone the other day, I'm still like, I'm talking to Buddy Williams, Steve Gadd, same thing. First time I spoke to Steve Gadd, it was he's the one. Steve is responsible for my drum endorsement. He actually called Yamaha and said, "You should you should uh, hook this guy up because he's he's got something here." Yeah. And every time I see him, he treats me like I've, you know. Like I just, I mean, I have a great Steve Gas story. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, man. So <laughs> back in high school, I I was in band, in senior band with a, a guy named Jeff, Jeff Samahano. And Jeff played the drum right next to me. And and Jeff was also studying to go to, to college. So he was always practicing early in the morning, his techniques. And he did go to music college. But he was always talking about certain drummers. And my favorite drummers back then in, in uh, high school was Billy Cobham, Lenny White, Bernard Purdy, Max Roach, Elvin Jones, um, uh, uh, Robin Russell, uh, Zigaboo, uh, a couple, couple more guys that I just loved what they did but he was always talking about peter erskine danny Serafin from chicago steve gadd and i didn't know steve gadd i didn't i didn't know him yet yeah but after he spoke about it i started looking and he told me the songs and i was going man this steve gadd dude is ridiculous 
So we would go to my friend's house, Ed York, and Ed lived on the other side of the Bronx, and Ed had a lot of records, and we would listen to different things, and we always back then read the album covers. Yeah. So I became a Steve Gadd fan, like everybody else. I loved everything he did. So my friend, Artie Durant, who lived across the street from me in, uh, in, in the Bronx, and Kenny Drew Jr., his father, Kenny Drew Sr., was a famous jazz pianist, and Kenny was ridiculous, way beyond us. <laughs> we found out that Steve Gadd was sick. Now, what's so odd is this is before social media, so I don't know how we found out. <laughs> we found out that Steve Gadd was sick and that he had pneumonia, but we also knew where Steve Gadd lived. <laughs> At that particular time, he was living on 30th Street in Manhattan between 7th and 8th Avenues. So we came up with this crazy idea to go downtown. Now, we're all teenagers. We're going to go downtown. We're going to knock on his door. We're going to act like it's a rehearsal studio. But then when he comes to the door, we're going to say, get well soon. Just get well. We want you to get well. So four of us, uh, Freddie Coleman, Artie Durant, uh, Kenny Drew, and myself, go downtown. We go up to his door. You know, little doe-eyed little boys. Yeah. And we knock on the door. And a, a man opens the door. It's not Steve Gadd. So he, I, re, I remember him uh, being on the phone at the time. So he stops the phone call and he says, hey, how you doing? And I, we said, uh, is this a rehearsal studio? And he says, no, I'm really sorry. And he starts to close the door. And I said, well, well to be very honest with you, um, we know that Steve Gadd lives here and he's not feeling well. And we just came by to say, get well. And he went, Wow. He said, well, believe it or not, I'm his doctor and Steve is here. Let me see if he'll come to the door. <laughs> so the door closes and when it opens the door, Steve Gadd is standing there. And it was like Yoda. We couldn't move. We just went, oh, Steve Gadd. You know? So, <laughs> so we, we all say hello and he asks all of our names. He says, it was really... Really nice of you guys to come down and, uh, you know, wish me well. I really appreciate that. And like I said, he asked our names. And then we turned around and left. It was like, oh, we leaving, Stevie. I mean, it was just like. <laughs> <laughs> so not too much longer after that, I get a call from my mentor, Ricky Mangum, uh, to do a, a recording session for this guy named Miko Minardo. Now, Miko had a big hit song with this disco version of Star Wars. Um, the composer was a very famous guy named Harold Wheeler. So they called Ricky. I don't know how they got in touch with him, but they called him to do Side B, one song, like they did on the first record. They used some some young kids to do a song. Called, uh, so we, I didn't even know what the song was called yet. But we we composed something, and we went in and we played these drum chord drum snares and stuff like that. And it just so happens that that day in the studio right across from us was was Richard T, Eric Gale, Steve Gadd, and Bob James doing a session over there. So I came out. There was a coffee machine. I'm getting something, and Steve walks out. And he's standing right to my, he's on my left side. And I see him and I keep glancing over at him. And he's like, he's probably saying to himself, what the hell is wrong with this kid? So I look at him. He looks back at me. He says, hello. And I said, do you remember me? 
And he says, aren't you one of the kids who came to my house? I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm doing a session with Miko next door. He said, wow, that's really cool. He said, give me your name again. I said, my name, my name is Ralph. And from, I don't know if he has a photographic memory. Yeah. But many years later, I'd seen him. Maybe he was being kind and said, I remember meeting you or whatever. But that's when he asked me what drums did I play. And I told him, I play on anything that everyone, anyone puts in front of me. And, but I am endorsed by Zildjian. You said, give me a name. I'll have somebody call you. And at that particular time, I was doing, I was busy. I was doing most of the clubs in New York. I was playing at the Apollo. Plus, I was doing a TV show at the Apollo. And I was doing uh, the Caroline Ray show on ABC. So I was busy. Yeah. So I'm sitting in my office at the Caroline Ray show because I was the band leader. Um, and my phone rang. And it was Yamaha. And they said, hey, this is so-and-so from Yamaha. Steve Gadd told me to call you. Welcome to the family. And that was it. And I've been with them ever ever since. And, never, and anytime I can get to see Steve somewhere, I'll go. You know, he's he's nice guy. What an honor, though, right? Oh, God. Unbelievable, man. Again, talking to him even now is still... You Dennis James, same thing. I called Dennis the other day. When I talk to Dennis, I'm like, I can't believe I'm talking to Dennis Chambers. Incredible. I'm very fortunate. Very lucky. Right on. Yeah. And 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 just being around, like we've been around each other for several years now. Yes. You are humble and you <laughs> love drums. And you you radiate that how much you love. Oh drums, man, you thank know? you. I do. I mean, I can't I can't think of a better place for anyone to, other than being behind a drum set. I don't care what you, you could be a, a, a listen, a, a, a automaker, just play some drums. It just changes. Your life. <laughs> I, my next question was like, I mean, playing with Nile, you've had an amazing career and, and I'm sure you've had a lot of all moments, but that to me is your all moment. Yeah, it like, is. It is. It's yeah. You went from, I mean, this is one of your guys, you had the bravery to go tell him to get well. I mean, that's only something dumb kids think, oh, right. he's going to love it. Right. Exactly. You know? The man had freaking pneumonia. His lung, he was sick. He was yeah. really sick. Yeah. But he did recover fully, which yeah. was incredible. And so that's an all moment. Yeah. That's it, just it, something it, that, you it, know? It was crazy, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we did that. That we had the gumption to go down and knock on this man's That's door. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm glad. I, I could listen to those stories all day. You know, I'm sure a lot of people could. Yeah. Well, man, let's talk about soul snacks. Oh, the cookies, the cookies. Yes. Yeah. I've been fortunate enough to taste your cookies. Oh, man. Just once. But how did, how did soul snacks get started? Um, when I was a little kid, I was really young. We used to go to my grandmother's house, who lived with my aunt, and uh, my cousin Vincent was there. He's a year was a year younger than me. And since we were both the youngest, when my grandmother would would bake, we had the job of cleaning the bowl because we were the youngest. We were yeah. the two youngest uh, kids, and um, those early memories of that time just always made me smile. Always made me happy. The family being together, just playing. Me and my cousin Vincent 
I loved him, but we would we would fight a lot. You know, we were the same age. We just fight, and, but I loved him. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always wanted to um, have that family vibe. So I watched my grandmother bake, and I watched my mother bake, and I just picked it up, and I kept it up after they both passed away. And one of the first things I had done after my mother passed away is um, I started a production company in in the same apartment. And one day, my guys were over, uh, Gerard Harmon and uh, Armando Cologne. And I went in the kitchen and I said, listen, I'm going to bake some cookies. And they said, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'm going to bake some cookies. <laughs> so I went that just there. sounds funny. It does, say- right? So they, they was like, what's up with that, brother? <laughs> so I went. So I went. <laughs> It's true. So I went in the kitchen and I, I, I made a batch of cookies and I brought them back in the studio and they was like, hey, yo, man, these are these are killing, man. Just make sure you have them every time we come over to have do some work. So right about that time, my girlfriend moved, moved in. And when the holidays came, we were trying to figure out, we wanted, you know, young love, we want to announce we're together and let's yeah. do... So, but we didn't have any money, so... So I said, why don't we just bake the cookies? You know, she said, okay, that's a good idea. So we went downtown to, there was this 99 cent store right behind Macy's on 34th Street. And we bought all of these holiday tins, uh, very cheap, came back and we made cookies and we put them in, we sent them out to everyone and our families, all of our friends. And everyone said how great they tasted, that this could be a great, idea for a business. And I thought, I thought about it before, but you know, her and I together, we could work together, you know, that kind of thing. So we started a company and the first name of the company, because we both, she, she's, um, she was from the projects too mm-hmm. in Manhattan in Spanish Harlem. And she graduated from Juilliard and actually moved to um, Spain to dance with Jose Greco. Oh, wow. So if you know flamenco dance, you know that Jose Greco was one of the masters, of, and she was his partner for a while. But then she had an injury and had to come home suddenly, and, and I met her at the Apollo Theater. She was actually working as one of the, um, the uh, uh, riggers there. Anyway, we moved in together. People love the cookies. We started the business together. The fact that we're both from the projects from the ghetto, we call them ghetto cookies. That was a joke name. But then I realized, I said, wait a minute. The ghetto always gets such a bad rap, but there's so many great things that have come out of the ghetto. People and styles and and fashion. Yeah. That I don't look at the word ghetto in like a negative way. And the the slang for ghetto wasn't popular then. Like it's all of a sudden, like a couple of years later, anything that was raunchy, they would call it ghetto. Yeah, and I'm like, where did that come from? You know, I'm I, I'm I wear the, the ghetto as a badge of honor. So we was we was sold a lot of cookies. Um, the first thing that happened is we were the very first night that we decided to send the cookies or do anything with the cookies. I was working at an open mic at Sylvia's uh, Soul Food restaurant. Mm-hmm. Right next door is a place called Sylvia's also. My friend Melba, who is now a big restaurateur, a global restaurateur, 
she was the proprietor of the open mic that night. We were friends. So I called up and said, Mel, I got this idea. I want to sell cookies, so can I start there? And she said, sure, bring them by. So I brought by, this is how crude it was. I went on my computer. I made this logo that looked like the projects, and I put a rainbow over the top of it. I'll, I'll send it to you so you can okay. see. You'll be the only person that ever had this since since then. Um, I, I printed it out on regular paper, not even uh, labels. I put school glue on it put it on a brown paper bag, put the cookies in a sandwich bag inside the brown paper bag and took a piece of scotch tape to close the bag. Talking primitive. And we took about 20 bags down to Melbourne's and samples. We sold them for like six cookies, $5. That's what we did. So we get there. Shelby, I don't know if you know her, that sang with Prince, the bald head girl was Prince. No, I didn't know her, but I know who you were talking about. She yes. was the singer for the night. She was the MC for the uh-huh. night. Uh-huh. And she announced the cookies and people sample them and they buy the bags. I think they bought them just because it was, you know, we got ghetto cookies here tonight. People (laughs) like ghetto cookies. What the hell is ghetto cookies? It just so happens at the bar, there was a guy from a magazine and Melba was telling him about us and he decided to do a story on us. But I was so ill-prepared, I didn't want to give him my home number, and I didn't have a phone. So I gave him my sister's pager number from from work with the PIN number, one of those. And she said, no, it's cool. Okay, you're only going to probably get a few calls. No problem. Gave it to him. The article comes out. First day, she calls me up and says, get a pen. Let me give you these names. A few hours later, get a pen, more calls. The next day, I guess all the subscriptions hit people's houses <laughs> because I was writing down so many names. Now my apartment has like no room to make cookies. It's one little oven. So I tell my friend Artie, uh, my friend Patrice, who lived across the street, his brother Artie was the drummer. His mother had a brownstone and and the bottom was, was uh, vacant. And I said, yo, Patrice, ask your mother if I can rent the space because I got to expand my business. And he said, I'm not asking her. You ask her. You know how strict she is. So I go over to Mr. Durant and I give him my whole business plan. Like I said, Mr. Durant, I have a cookie company. We were just in a magazine and things are growing. I got to move and I got to put, I got to gut your kitchen and put in a convection oven and a hood and a three tub sink. And I got to have a preparation area and a storage area and an office and your place is perfect for me. And she heard my whole story and she just looked at me, you know, with that, that, that yeah. mama look, <laughs> I you know, see that it. Look. Yeah. she just looked at me and she went, okay, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And we, I couldn't believe it because she wouldn't even give it to her son. <laughs> I guess he was too afraid to ask. So we started the business, and from there, we got calls from the New York Times, the Post. Uh, we ended up being on the TV Food Network. I hired a publicist at that point. <laughs> then it just went, it started to go crazy. And in the midst of our growth, me and my girlfriend started going through problems because every place we would go, she would get upset that people were not associating her with the cookies. Yeah, And I would tell her, I said, both of our pitches are on this thing, but I'm out in the public more than you. There's no reason for that. But eventually she just walked away. She says, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I don't want to have anything to do with these cookies. <laughs> so I, I, she left 
And I kept it up for, for a little while. And then I couldn't do it anymore because my schedule had gotten so incredibly busy. Yeah. So my lawyer said, listen, it's your recipe. Change the name of the company. Just restart the company again. And that's when I, I met my, my wife and we had a baby. And then a few years later, I started the company back. Now we're in Walmart. We're in Kroger. I'm, uh, I had a store in Japan. I'm looking at a store now in Manchester. So it just is that testament of getting out of your own way. Yeah. You know, um, we now have gluten-free vegan cookies and, you know, it's just taken on a whole like direction that started from my apartment. Yeah. That's amazing, man. Very true. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I, but it, you're right. It's that whole get out of your own way. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't, it's the what if part, bro, that scares me. That's the part that scares me. It's the what if. When you get old, what if I would have tried? What if I would have? That scares me because that to me will lead me to depression if I have to do that. I wanna yeah. I wanna know by trying and 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 failing because now I'm successful because I tried. Yeah. Cause success is not how much money you make, it's in finishing the thought. And that's the thing that I try to tell people. Success is not how much money you make, it's in finishing the thought. That's the prize. Exactly. Yeah. When I, I grew up being afraid. I grew up expecting or wanting to do what was expected of me and then failing and then getting even more depressed because I failed. Mm. And it wasn't till, in so many words, somebody told me, get out of your own way. Right. You know, be afraid, but then just do it anyway. Right. And uh, it, I don't come from a family that, that, tries to I could it's not a bad thing you want to be a nine to five be a nine to five right, you right, want to right, do right. other and it you know when I started doing this it was just like I like this you know and it's scary when you're a single parent and you're like I got a tour now I gotta right. figure out the other part I gotta figure out insurance right. I gotta figure out this but you know what I'm gonna do it mm -hmm. because you know I don't want to live and go like, what if I would have tried that, you know, Right. while I'm doing something I hate doing. And I always tell people like, there's so many people out there that work jobs that they hate. And there's so many people out of work. Like I do something I love because I, I tried and it worked out for me, you know? And yeah. I was still in the mindset back then when I started that like, what if it doesn't work out? I can go back to my old job. It wasn't until I got to that out that, of that, I, that I was like, I started getting the calls and being that guy. Like then I realized, oh, if I network and I become the guy that doesn't have a butt behind his name, you know, right, right. We need a guy to go into Canada for a run, and our tech can't do it because he's got, you know, a record, right. Well, this guy's your guy, right. You don't have to call anybody else. He'll go. He'll leave tomorrow, right. And I, I got that reputation as the guy that will just, yeah, right. You got it. You and and you'll handle it. And the best way that I wouldn't do it is like I can't because I'm working. Right, which which is great. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So I mean, I get it, man. It's it's amazing story, man. The, you know, you have an amazing story. Uh, how you you came up? Like I said, you're very humble. And 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 when I came to you, was it just yesterday? I came yeah. to you and I said, "Hey, Ralph, listen, I don't want to bother you." Before I got it out, you're like. I'll do your podcast. <laughs> I was just because, waiting for you to ask me. 
<laughs> no, because I heard and I, I, what I didn't know, to be honest with you, if there was specific subjects or people. No. So I didn't feel slighted yeah. by it at no. all. I just, I wanted to do it because. You know what I felt? I felt you could, you wouldn't. <sighs> There's so many people that I want and I've been told no so many times that right. it's become like, all right, it's not personal. It's just they won't you know, do it. You know what? I, 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 I learned something very important from um, an interview that I heard with Ray Charles. And it's kind of something that I live by, but it was so affirming to hear it come from him. As you know, Ray Charles is a legend. Yeah. Um, did some amazing things, and he's blind. My my mentor, Ricky Williams, that I told you about, mm-hmm. what I didn't tell you is Ricky's blind. And and drums wasn't Ricky's first instrument. It was it was uh keyboards. But I watched him every day get out of his own way. He would just do stuff like he was a sighted person. And it always intrigued me because if he can do that, you know, what what is wrong with me at any 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 point? Yeah. So I'd heard Ray Charles do this interview. I was on a flight. And he talked about the, the um, when Ahmed Erdogan came to him to say, I want you on my label. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, yeah, we could talk about it, but I just want to let you know, I want to own my own masters. And masters are the tapes that yeah. your music is on that record companies usually own, which I never understood. But he said, I want to own my music. I want to, that's my stuff but I want it to be mine. You can have me, but those are mine. And Ahmed said, well, this is kind of unheard of. And he came back to him and said, you got a deal. And then Ray Charles says, listen, I didn't know if he was going to say yes, and I didn't know if he was going to say no. But if I didn't ask, I knew what the answer was. Yeah. So that's why it's always important to ask because you just never know. You're 50% to yes, just like you're 50% to no. Yeah. So it's a, it's a middle road thing. So that's how I always think about stuff. I just ask. Yeah. You know, I mean, so to, to you, I say, ask. Yeah. You, you might get 25 no's, but you might get that one yes yeah. from someone, yeah. you know, that says, yeah, of course I'll do you. You know, how much time you need? You need an hour, two hours, whatever. Yeah. You're a good guy. And I think most people will Thank probably you. say, yeah, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. Some of the people that say no, I don't think it's their snobbiness. I think that they might feel like they don't have anything to offer to yeah. the podcast. And that could be a way to look at it. When my mother died, I was I became very depressed for a while. And I was still functioning. So I was one of those kind of people that you would go out into the public world being one thing. But the minute you got in your own space, you just turned into something else. Yeah. I used to have to talk myself out of bed, you know, and this went on for a very, I lost my girlfriend in the, right, right as I, right as my mother died, I lost the, the, the girl I loved for, like, unbelievably loved. <laughs> She's a singer and she sung with everybody from the Rolling Stones to Bruce Springsteen. And we're still friends to this day. But when I lost her love, I just, and my mother, Mm-hmm. And my gig with Evelyn Champagne King, um, I I was a mess for for a while, and it took me a long time to get up out of it. But I was still functioning every day. But that after I ke- got out of it, it came by way of one day I was in my apartment by myself, 
And you know, when you look in the mirror, I, I believe that there's two ways you look in the mirror. And one way you don't look all the time. The one way, the, the first way is you're looking to groom yourself, get yourself together, look at your clothes. Okay, I'm ready for the world. I'm out the door. But then every now and then you'll look in the mirror and see a reflection of somebody that is you, but you're looking back at you like you're not you, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every now and very rare does that happen. And one day I caught my image in the mirror and I stopped and I just stared at myself. And then I started talking to myself. And the first words that came out of my mouth is, what in the hell are you doing? Your mother would, she would just die if she saw you acting like this. You're, you're doing crazy stuff. You're, you're not treating yourself. You're not playing. You're not, what are you doing? Your mother didn't raise you like that. I really had a conversation. Yeah, as yeah. If, and in the beginning, it felt weird. But maybe like 10 minutes into it, I really was giving myself the same advice that I was giving to somebody else. And I actually came out of it a new person, realizing that my brain needs new exercise. My attitude about life needs new exercise. And every situation, good or bad, is good. But you got to find the lesson and yeah. what was good about it. So after I lost her, I realized finally that she was never really gone. As long as I have her lessons and her voice and I can see her face and I can live by her, her great tools, then she's never gone. There's just one aspect of her that's not here. Yeah. But she's always going to be with me and I'm always going to, you know, live to, to honor her and do all these things. And I, it started to help my brain and my posture to come back and to grow and to be a better person. And that's a large part of why I talk to people and tell people and teach people about life. Because if you can learn to understand that your bad days are your good days too, there's there's so much more brightness you'll have in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. You know, you won't be so down on your soul and yourself and your position. You realize that tomorrow's a new day that you can, you got another 24 to get this right. Yeah. And even if that's not right, you look back and go, okay, so what did I do wrong? Which is great because you can analyze yourself. Yeah. That's a, that's beautiful. That's a it beautiful is. thing, it is. man. So I would say, my opinion Ask everybody. Everybody that you want, ask them. Yeah. You know, just... You know, when I started this, I'm going... We, My partner and I, we're going on three years of doing this every mm. week. Nice. Consistently put out a, an episode. Sometimes we freak out like, we don't have nobody. <laughs> and uh, in the beginning, I was just ignorant. And I was just... Like like when you messaged one of your heroes, I messaged... You know, Rudy Sarzo, bass player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just messaged him on Facebook. Uh, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll do it." <laughs> I'd been doing like six episodes already. I didn't. I didn't even know I'm supposed to hold the mic to my mouth. Like, down here, you know? right, 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 right. And then he said, "Reach out to me in two weeks. We'll set up a time." And I knew right then he meant it. Yeah, I'm busy right now. So two weeks went by. I was like counting down the days. I messaged him. He messaged me right back. This is my number. Call me. We're going to do it on this day. I can only give you 30 minutes. And I was like, and this is a hero. I'm, you know, I'm Mexican. Right. So growing up, I listened to a lot of rock. He played for Ozzy, he played for Quiet Riot, and he was Cuban. He was Hispanic. Right, right, right. So to see somebody that looked like me doing it, he right. was a hero. Right. 
So it was Memorial Day. I think it was our 15th episode. 10th or 15th. It was one of those monumentous, you know, like, ooh, we made it to 10. <laughs> it was one of those. And uh, I called him up. He answered. I pressed record, made sure everything was working. And he said, listen, man, I'm gonna, I got about 30, 40 minutes at the most. I'm not trying to be rude. And I was like, that's all I need, man. That's all I need. Two hours later, I had to shut him up. I had to tell him. I gotta go. <laughs> and he was just talking. He was just the most accommodating, very kind, like very much like yourself. Oh, like tonight, anybody you. else would have freaked. Like I'm in your lobby. <laughs> what are you doing? This is um, you know, like very and and it, and it made me feel good. And so yeah, I I have a problem with self esteem. I have a problem with confidence. A lot of times, I have to get out of my own way, but. I get told no no on a weekly basis, but I don't let it stop me. And the reason I hadn't approached you was because Ralph is a busy man, and I don't want to hinder him with my podcast. Nah, man. But I'm glad I did, and and I'm glad you you agreed to do it, man, because this has been one of the most my most favorite conversations. Oh, thank you, man. I mean, listen, you're a homie, man. You're my man. So, (laughs) you know, one the great one of the greatest things that we we have uh, on this Duran Duran tour is the camaraderie between all of us. Yeah. It's a very beautiful thing to be able to say that there's no animosities or or problems or issues between all of us. Yeah. And and that's a great thing when I see you guys, it's like everybody, "Hey man, how you doing?" back yeah. and forth, we sit down, we How's your day? Yeah. And and what what proves to me how synergistic it all is is when you go to catering and everybody's sitting at everybody's tables. Yeah. It's like Duran people are sitting with Bastille people, sitting with Don Rogers people, and it's all it's not sectioned off like that. Yeah. The only time it becomes sectioned is when you get technical people talking <laughs> technical stuff that you musician. get the video people over here to <laughs> talking about the audio right. people over here. Everybody's hating on backline. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's when that happens. Yeah. But for the most part, people just you know, hey, how yeah. you doing? Sit down and you know, grab. And that's a meal. when you learn. Yeah. It's it's like it's almost like you know, um, I can't think of the word right now. Is when you put groups of people together that aren't the same, and you make them learn about right. each other, and that's how they make, like you said, synergy. I honestly wish that this this is like a a, a, a test in in human cultural. Uh, uh, just camaraderie. Yeah, you know, all these different cultures together, and nobody cares. No, <laughs> everybody's no. just vibing off of everybody's yeah. vibe, and nobody's making jokes about race or you know no. politics or whatever. We're just enjoying the moment, and yeah. that's what <laughs> mostly as. Much of a fantasy, it's actually a great reality that yeah, we have. Yeah, it is, and, right? You know, you know when, when we started this <clears> tour, <throat> we, you know, we have new production, new tour manager, new production manager, new all this. And we did the UK run with Jake Shears. Mm-hmm. And our production manager called us in a meeting. He goes, listen, when we get to the US, we have, it's going to be three headliners on the same stage. And I'm going to do this and we got to do that. And, and we said, well, don't worry about Nile. Like we've done this, right? We work well together. It's right. it's a brotherhood to right. use a cliche term. It's a brotherhood, and then we're gonna get Bastille in line with us, and mm-hmm. we're gonna make it all work. Mm-hmm. 
And he was really worried. And he, I mean, not worry, because Greg doesn't really worry about anything, but right. he was just like, and then now he sees how it works. Like, you know, we've been doing it a long time. Right. And, 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 and it's been cool. You know, I yeah. mean, it's a great thing. Yeah. We're fortunate. We really are fortunate. We are, right? I mean, okay. Yeah. Because I hear horror stories about other tours, and I, and I think dude, about ours, like, you know, the. You just took the words out of my mouth. Right. I was getting ready to say, I've, I've heard horror stories. <laughs> There was, I think one of the worst horror stories I've heard of being on the road is when um, uh, Guy went on the road with New Edition. There was fights, literal fights. They, they, one person died. Yeah, yeah. That, that's how crazy being on the road can be. You know, yeah. I, yeah they, they sent out thugs to beat up people and. There was guns and it got bad. Spilled back to the hotel. Yeah. You know, we have a very beautiful situation. I'm very fortunate that that uh, yeah that we're back out on tour with you guys, man, because it's great. It's really it, great. Yeah, it is. It's it's great. We, you know, Nick and Kim both live a few blocks from me in Jersey City. Really? Yeah. I didn't even know you lived in Jersey City. Yeah. That's crazy, bro. I thought you lived like I. I used to live in Texas. Thank you. That's right. I, I was. I, I've been in Jersey City almost two years now. How you like it? I love it. Yes, yeah, nice. I love it. There, right? it's yeah, ten Jer minutes from the city, man. Jersey City's changed a lot, man. Yeah, I like so, it. So now that I know you're in Jersey City, we got to stay in touch because I take everyone to this uh, Spanish restaurant in the Bronx. Crazy. I brought a guy. Uh, I brought a. True story. I have a friend who is multi, multi rich billionaire guy. He's a friend. Yeah. And he came to New York, brought his yacht over and, and just chilling. If he was in the room, you would never know that he was so, so incredibly wealthy. And I said, I'm taking you somewhere in the Bronx. I want you to check out. And I took him to the restaurant. And uh, his his friend Jackson was so he said, "Oh, this is the best food I have ever tasted in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness, I love this. We have to come back again. So I got to bring you to this spot, man. Let's it's, do it's, it. You'll have my number. Yeah, of course. It's, yeah. one, it's one of my go to spots, bro. It's, Let's do it. It's really good. They have a they have a pollo guisado that will knock your brains out, man. I love this place, man. Yeah." That's all. I'm. I'm always down for that. I'm always down for that. Yeah, cool. That'd Maybe be great. we can stop by Soul Snacks too. Yeah, I get you some of those. Yeah, <laughs> I will definitely get you some. Well, man, I've taken enough of your time. I'm fine, bro. We uh, could go on for another hour if you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where can people find you online? Uh, a couple of places. If you want cookies, go to eatsoulsnacks.com. Mm -hmm. If you want to find out more about me, just go to ralphroll.com, R-A-L-P-H-R-O-L-L-E.com. That will take you to all my social media platforms. It can link up to all that. Yeah. I um, I try to tell young drummers, do not sleep on having your own website. Because even though social media is what it is, don't be fooled by that from a professional standpoint. There's webs there's companies like Wix and Squarespace that you can build your own website that when people go, it tells more of a personal story 
than you having to search around your page without any kind of real explanation. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, man. And what do you got coming up with Sheik? Well, after we finish the Duran Duran tour, we then, are you, you, we're doing Australia together? No, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah, okay, then we, we head over to Australia. And after Australia, I'm going to Tokyo for just a quick hit of, three days straight and then on the third i fly from tokyo to dubai and then back home and then uh i think the next gig is in the bahamas okay so nowhere nice nowhere nice (laughs) all horrible places And if, if anyone is interested in your masterclass, they can find that about on your website yeah if you go on youtube um i'm actually working um to do something really important for Bernard Purdy. Since I've met him, uh-huh. I fell in love with Bernard and his wife, Celia. So I decided to uh, put together a live uh, podcast um, video presentation on October 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 p.m. Uh, British Standard Time. And it's just a conversation. We're going to have uh, a host, but then we're going to have special guest host contributors. Some of the people are going to be Dennis Chambers, a young lady who's tearing up the world, Nandy Bushell, um, Buddy Williams. Um, I'm working on getting some others. I tried to get um, Quest, but he's doing a documentary right now for, for Sly Stone, so I couldn't get him. But I'm probably... Uh, gonna get Omar Hakeem, uh, Charlie Drayton, um, and Steve Jordan. I'm trying to get, and there's a couple other guys, but they're coming in just to ask one question. Wow, you know, to, to uh, another legend of a of a person. Wow, and I really love um, I really love Bernard, and I've learned a lot about his story. And he's he's a he's a older man who's still sharp and playing his behind off but i want to feature him to the world on october 9th so i'm trying to get as many people as possible you don't have to be a drummer just be a music lover and understand if you google bernard purdy you'll see why this man is so important we'll definitely uh link it up thank you man and 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 i'll i'll remind myself to push it the week before thank you very much yeah Yeah, it's gonna be cool it's gonna be very cool i'm excited about it before I ask you the next question, yes, I had, it's a, it's something happened the other night when Kirk and 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 Amir were at the show. Uh, Kirk had a a container of cookies. Did he share those with you? No, Captain Kirk from no, the Roots. I didn't. I didn't even see him. He, he had these cookies, and they were in the back of the stage right before you guys came on. And I said, "What are you guys doing back here?" And they're like, "Some Englishman yelled at us, so we're gonna stay out of his way." And I said, "Come watch from from my world." And uh, he had these cookies, and I went back there to grab a bass. My boss wanted a bass. And, and I said, are you guys all right? And he was like, yeah. And he goes, hey, man, have one of these cookies. They're the best chocolate chip cookies you'll ever have. And I go, they're just cookies, right? And he goes, no, no, they're just cookies. And they were delicious. What were they? Chocolate chip cookies. From You know from where? No, he just had them like in a little Tupperware because he was carrying them everywhere. And then when, once they were leaving to go talk to you and Jerry, he came up to me. He goes, I left my cookies in your world. Can you go get them? 
I got to find out what cookies they were. Isn't that the craziest stuff that ha- everybody thinks there's crazy things happening, but <laughs> it's Captain Kirk from the Roots carrying around a wow. Tupperware container of cookies. I got I got to find out what cookies he was eating. <laughs> Turn them on to some soul snacks. Yeah, they were really good, man. Wow. Well, the, the podcast is called Is Breakfast Included? Nice. Ralph, and if we were having breakfast, what would you have? Oh, man, my favorite breakfast of all time? My, yeah. My, okay, so my wife. Don't think about health reasons. Just oh, no, no, <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. But my, <laughs> my favorite uh, breakfast is salmon cakes and grits. Right on. And if it's not salmon cake, it could be shrimp and grits. Or any kind of fish, whiting, catfish, but it's got to have grits. It's got to be my wife's grits. She makes the best. When we had our restaurant, man, people would come so far to, just to get the grits. She had a creamy grits and she had regular, and they were both always made perfect. You want to know something? What's that? I've never had grits. Really? But I'm going to come have your wife's no, grits. No, you know, no. Here's what you're going to do. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to invite you to, to my apartment, and we're going to have a, a breakfast. I'm going to tell her to, to that I did your the podcast and I, we had a great time and you're going to have some grits for the first time. Right on, man. That's the truth. I promise you that. Since I'm you're right across to Jersey, you'll be in my house in less than 45, 45 minutes. minutes. Yeah. 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 Well, Ralph, man, thank you so much for this. It's been an honor talking. It's been an honor being on the road with you. Yes. And the same here, man. I'm uh every time I see you, you have a smile, man. Every time. It's never a day where I've it seen. used to be a facade. It's real now. Good, that's great. It used to the smile used to be a facade, <laughs> like you were talking earlier. Yeah, it, it's real now. I figure, you know, just be nice and be happy. Life is short. Yeah, and whatever inner um, I don't like to call them demons. I don't like that word. But any any inner turmoil, yeah, that you're dealing with, um, there's outlets and people that can help you through those things. And that yeah. was my problem that I didn't realize. Yeah. I thought I was on an island dealing with it by myself. Yeah. So. And that's the hardest part. Yeah. Well, man, it was good talking to you. You too, man. Thank you again. Thank you Thank for you. taking time this late. Oh, it's all good. What time is it? It's actually 1230. 1230. That's, <laughs> that's fine. In Minnesota, anyway. Minneapolis. Bro, I'll stay up for another two hours. All right. Thanks, Thanks man. Ralph Roll. I told you you were going to like him. You don't like him. You love him, don't you? If you want cookies, visit Eat Snow, Eat Soul Snacks.com. If you want to find out more about Ralph, RalphRoll.com. That's R O L L E.com. Like I said, go through his credits. You'll be there all day. All day. Um, remember on October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time tribute to Bernard Purdy. We will remind you about that on this podcast. We'll probably post it on our Facebook page. Uh, check that out. It's really important to Ralph. Um, while you're online, you know what I'm going to say. I don't even have to tell you anymore, right? Because you've told everyone you know, like you've annoyed your friends to say. You go up to your friends, you go, hey, make sure you check out isbreakfast.bigcartel.com and buy a shirt. All right, guys, I am done. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye.